might be used to make decisions about us, whether giving us loans or whether we get into college. There's a lot of danger there as far as turning over uh, some of this decision making. Uh, and, I, and I think a good faith effort for efficiency, um, we may be causing some bad things to happen. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm reading this book, um, Weapons of Math Destruction. It's a great book. Great yeah. book, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, it's all about that, the whole the algorithms and how it pinpoints certain populations and making decisions based off those algorithms. Is that something you've looked into or what are your, what is your opinion about that? Uh, yeah, so there's a lot of problems as uh, I think the woman I was, her name is Kathy something. I can't remember the, mm -hmm. the author of that, but uh, that's a really good, um, book there's also another one called algorithms of oppression which is really looking a little bit farther ahead uh, than that book because the book that uh, you're reading right now is really just about algorithms so these are human generated um, decision making processes Right. Okay. So some human has decided, okay, well, if you live in this area code, uh, you might not be a good loan prospect. Uh, if you make this amount of income, if you've had these certain things, they are actually putting in the characteristics. What gets even worse when we get into artificial intelligence and machine learning is we are training the machines and then they are selecting criteria that we may not even know they're selecting. So it can very much be kind of a black box. So we talk about different black boxes, basically uh, decision-making processes or um, uh, data that we don't really have a clear view of. And so that can be really problematic when it comes to doing things like making loan decisions, making decisions mm -hmm. about who gets into college. Um, and so that's just from a very basic standpoint, but then you even get into areas like in my area in, in higher education, uh, are these technologies being deployed in a way that's really benefiting the student or is really benefiting the institution? And I think she has a chapter in that book about colleges. Yes. And she talks about the fact that if we were to deny entry to more people, we'd be, we look like we're more elite, right? And right. so we move up in the rankings. And it's kind of insane that we've allowed uh, a newspaper like Newsweek to basically take over 
how we engineer our programs so that we can move up in the rankings. And it's a very kind of high stakes thing. In fact, at University of Kansas City, uh, one of our sister campuses here in the University of Missouri system, uh, there was a gentleman that was the dean of their business school that basically lied or forged data on their reports so that they would go up in the rankings mm. because he was even afraid for his job if they did not increase or perform. Of course, this was eventually found out and uh, he was subsequently fired. But it's a high, high stakes game and it's one in which we are too often looking at institutional goals over the goals of our students. And so that's one of the things that really concerns me. Now, sometimes when I go on podcasts, I sound like I'm a total um, uh, naysayer and mm -hmm. uh, down yeah. on uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence. I actually think it's a really powerful tool and can do some really, really interesting things. But once again, we have to understand how these algorithms are working and we have to understand what biases might be built into them. So let me give you an example of something good, okay. something that you and I will probably benefit from and probably benefit from very quickly. Okay. And that is the use of AI in medicine. So if we were to look at the jobs of our doctors, especially cardiologists, radiologists, pathologists, a lot of what they do is recognize patterns. And so machine learning algorithms where we can show it certain patterns, like this is a pattern or this is an x-ray of someone who has pneumonia or has a particular disease. These are x-rays of people that were thought to have this disease, but didn't. These are x-rays of healthy people, so on and so forth. You kind of get where I'm going. We can train that machine learning algorithm to be better than a doctor, uh, a human doctor, at detecting whether Scott has a particular disease or malady. And so that's going to be one that is going to be very exciting. That's one where it's very narrow in form. We're looking at a very specific imaging data. We're recognizing certain patterns in a tissue sample, something like that. We're maybe looking at an EKG. So we're able to see those patterns or the machine learning algorithm is able to see those patterns. And we can feed it lots and lots of data that's been collected over the years. And so there's now over 50 machine learning algorithms that have been approved for human use. And so it's probably likely that when you and I visit our doctor, uh, they're going to put in our data and say, well, Scott, uh, here's something we should be concerned about or not concerned about, or you know, what is the likely outcome? So I think we're gonna see our doctors actually working hand in hand and side by side with these different machine learning algorithms. So that's something that really excites me. I think there's lots of great possibilities in other fields, like how do we get to a more sustainable energy grid? So looking at the patterns of energy usage, looking at uh, the flow of energy from one location in the country to another, I think there's tremendous ways that AI can really help us. But um, when we start to get into those areas where we have seen bias in the past, um, then that gets really problematic to turn that over to a machine because what we might do is just codify that bias in the machine itself or in the algorithm. Mm. 
And I think we all kind of have this attitude that computers are neutral, that they're not biased. But if you remember, if you've ever taken a programming course, you probably heard this phrase, garbage in, garbage out. Mm. That's exactly what we have sometimes with these machine learning algorithms. So there was a, um, a machine learning algorithm used by judges for sentencing people. So they would say, okay, well, Scott's come before us. We're going to enter all this information about him. And therefore, uh, he's a poor candidate for being released. Uh, we're going to, you know, try and keep him in jail longer or um, vice versa, however that works. I don't know why I always use my own name in this stuff. I should use John Doe because it sounds like I'm like, a criminal oh, no. or something. <laughs> so, uh, but John Doe, let's say, uh, John comes Doe. The, yeah. the, the judge. Uh, but they found that what had happened is they had actually fed this machine learning algorithm all sorts of data about previ previous convicts and their outcomes, and there was a, a racial bias to that. And so ProPublica did quite a investigative uh, a piece of what we call now uh, data journalism uh, to look at the data, and they found that part of this black box was the data that was being used to train these machine learning algorithms. And so it became, uh, it was not, not used anymore. I think it was called the compass system. And that's just one example where we really want the expert judgment of those judges, right? We, we want, um, for better or worse, we probably want uh, judges making those decisions. Not to say that they're perfect in any way, but, um, it was certainly would be dangerous to turn that type of decision making over. Uh, in another example, once again, going back to colleges, there was an institution out of Ohio, I believe, that did experiment with uh, selecting students based on a machine learning algorithms recommendation. Now, I think they were trying to be unbiased because they realized that there are in fact biases that humans have. So we've seen numerous examples where if you give uh, two resumes that are exactly the same and one of them says John Smith and another one has a, a very ethnic sounding name that it turns out that John Smith makes it through the screening process and the, the person with the ethnic sounding name doesn't. And so we know there's human biases and those are often just kind of implicit biases because you, 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 know, you, you drank beer with a John Smith when you were in college and so you like John Smith's, right? right. So it's not that um, you're really um, even thinking about it. Uh, so I think this college was trying to be well-meaning by doing that, but what they found is they were in fact, uh, their selection process in the past, their previous students that they trained this AI with uh, did have a bias as well. And so I think um, we really need to be cautious about that. And what really worries me about this age of COVID is things are accelerating so greatly that these things are gonna get incorporated into our systems before we even realize it. So I would really like to see some sort of best practices for how you vet and think about AI and its use in your organization or your government organization or, or whatever um, type of enterprise we're talking about. Yeah, I would think so. And I mean, much of what I see is this kind of argument about regulation related to AI and 
when can when should that be done? It should it be done, and is it too far gone? Kind of when you let the genie out of the bottle. How do you control something like an algorithm that maybe its creators don't even know how it's working at some point? Well, I think first of all, I'd like to see us start with some effective labeling. So we really mm. kind of need like uh, an FDA for data. Okay. So. The FDA was created, I believe, in the early part of the last century. And one of the things that it was a reaction to was these kind of snake oil salesmen that were selling various elixirs that would mm -hmm. cure you. Now that's been going on for years and years. <laughs> yes. But what they started to do was they started to sell you radioactive elixirs because radioactivity was a big thing at the time. And uh, it had just kind of been discovered. And so you would take this um, bottle of juice that had radium in it and you drink that and feel healthier. And there was, of course, all these um, claims about its uh, health benefits. Turned out that a bunch of these people ended up dying. In fact, one of the main proponents of it uh, died a pretty grisly death. And I think his teeth are still radioactive to this mm. day. Um, and that was the FDA was formed in reaction to it because people were being harmed by these kind of independent companies, these snake, snake oil salesmen. So I might make the argument that uh, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram mm. are our modern day snake oil salesmen. And we, right. It, at least need to have some sort of warning label that Scott, what you're being presented right now is based on an algorithm that is going to try to maximize your engagement, regardless of whether it makes you upset or not, right? Because um, I think it was uh, one of the people in the recent documentary on Netflix called The Social Dilemma. Great one, yeah. Who, Yeah, I highly recommend that everybody check that out. Um, talked about the fact that you're probably more valuable to Facebook if you're upset and angry, <laughs> right? Yeah, right. So if you're upset, you're going to be engaged, you're going to be posting stuff, you're going to be liking stuff, you're going to see more ads, they're going to be able to sell more ads to you. So you look at the social networks that have gone by the wayside, uh, they didn't have the ability to kind of press that little dopamine uh, button in your brain the way Facebook and Instagram do. So Google Plus um, was a so attempted a social network, but it didn't have that kind of um, reaction and it didn't have the kind of endless scrolling and other things that have been learned from the psychologists that have built uh, yeah. Las Vegas um, to keep that little dopamine hit going. Yeah. And so a lot of those uh, social networks have faded away. But um, yeah, so that's why I think we need at least an FDA that says, here's the data we're collecting. Uh, kind of like right now, you can, you know, take any uh, bottle of, you know, horrible sugary drink that's bad for you, some monster uh, drink mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, you may be making a stupid decision by drinking that, but at least you are given the information. So maybe I'm making a stupid decision by staying on Facebook for 10 hours a day, but <laughs> I can at least have the information about how stupid I mean, right? <laughs> so. Right. Is there a responsibility at all from the social media companies to... Uh, be more ethical about all these things? I don't think it's going to happen until they're forced to. Right. Uh, I, th I think the drive to uh, 
had more users, had more time on site. And the other really bizarre thing about the way these companies have set themselves up is that they are controlled just by, in the case of Facebook, one man. Okay, right. Mark Zuckerberg has set up the stock class so that he can override his entire board. Now, mm. I think that's a huge problem. Like if you and I pooled our billions of dollars together and we bought all the Facebook stock that you could possibly buy on the open market, we would still not be able to decide what happens with Facebook because there's a different class of voting shares that he controls. So I think that's also very problematic um, because once again, you're just down to one person. Um, I don't think Mark Zuckerberg is intrinsically you know, evil or anything like that. Right. But I think that he judges his success on their shareholder value. And that is related to time on site and the engagement that people have. And I don't think it's, I think for a lot of these Silicon Valley types, the money is just a way to keep score. You know, mm -hmm. Once you get beyond a certain point, you really don't need more money. He can't spend all that money in his lifetime. But um, it's kind of a way to keep score. And he wants to be, he always wants to win. And so I, I don't think that's ever going to change unless we force them to. And so some regulatory body says you have to do this. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. It's very interesting. I always think about the ethics behind things and how often what changes things for people is if they're forced to do something or money becomes the great decider of it. If you, you, you find people where you take something away monetarily, it makes, they don't make decisions based off of what's the good of people, that it's more of the, what's the good of the enterprise they're doing. You know? Right. Well, if you look at Facebook's settlement with the FTC overdoing a whole number of violations, including selling things to people they knew were under 13 and collecting their data, mm. So things that they, you know, were blatantly guilty of, that was only $5 billion. Now I say only that's $5 billion. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a parking ticket. So if you were a CEO and you were like, hmm, I could make an extra hundred billion, but I'd have to pay 5 billion in fines. Okay, that's fine by me, right? Yeah. That's, that's uh, the incentive structure is not set in a way that is going to make these companies respond. Now, if you said, well, we're going to fine you 200 billion for that 100 billion you made, then the incentive structure changes. And so we really have to get tough on this. And I will say they're coming at it from very different angles, but uh, both Republicans and Democrats do seem to agree that there's something wrong here. There's, yeah. there's some, something fishy in Denmark when it comes to- uh, That's right social media platforms. Uh, they don't seem that well educated. I wish that we would get some of the authors of uh, that book, uh, The Weapons yes. of Mass Destruction. I'd love to get her up there and question these senators, uh, or not senators, but the social media uh, CEOs. I think that'd be a lot more effective than having our uh, having our dear senators do they that. They don't know anything about it. They're completely ill-equipped to have intelligent discussions about it with these guys. I'm sure the heads of these companies are like, why am I talking to these guys and these, these group of people who really don't know anything about what we do?
Well, I imagine they're actually pretty happy with it because they can <laughs> they can sit there and run out the clock uh, on these guys that are asking stupid questions, and yeah. they can explain to them that they sell ads and that's how they make money, uh, yeah. and uh, say, uh, who is it, uh, Sindhu? Sundar Pichai, the mm -hmm. uh, head of Google, was asked about the iPhone, and he had to say, well, I don't make that. <laughs> that's not, that's <laughs> not me. Go uh, ask Tim Cook about that one. Um, <laughs> so maybe we'll see some change um, in how we approach this. Uh, I think you know, th there has to be some change at some point, because uh, we can't keep on going down this current path where we're just all in these little bubbles, right? We're not yeah. talking to people that we disagree with. Uh, we have such great filters that we don't really even see contrary information. Now, I, I am a Democrat, and it isn't too hard to Google me because I, I ran for office at one mm -hmm. time as a Democrat. But, you know, I want to hear about the good things that Donald Trump has done, too. Right. I don't sure. just want to hear about the bad things. Uh, and uh, I'm afraid that, you know, that's kind of my own bubble if I go on to these social media platforms. Yeah. And I think it's the same on the other side as well. And we just have to have some way that we can start talking to each other. And for me, uh, this year has been very disturbing because in the past, I always expected Democrats and Republicans to disagree on how we approach the problem. Yeah. Right. But I this idea that something might not be a problem at all or if you believe it is a problem, then you're that's part of your identification in a political sense. That's really pretty bizarre. Um, and that's a phenomenon yeah. that I can remember when that wasn't the case. So how um, does. uh the current age of AI play into disinformation? Like we're currently in a lot of like deep learning, machine learning, and then you know, talk with other AI folks about kind of this next stage of cognitive architecture. Um, oh, I'd love to talk to you about that, but how does, how does this play into this age of disinformation with artificial intelligence? Well, what happens is that, um... Once again, I'm going to go back to social media as mm -hmm. the platform in which a lot of these things are deployed. What happens is these algorithms tend to amplify something that may not be true. So if bots can be used to like Scott Christensen's uh, tweet about the conspiracy uh, on the moon landings or something, well, that then is sensed by the machine learning algorithm. It's going to move up. It's going to become trending. It's going to be presented to more people in their feed. And so that's one of the problems is that it's not so much that people post erroneous or wrong information. I think we have a longstanding tradition of doing mm -hmm. that in the United States. And uh, we say that political speech is very much protected and that includes telling lies. So you can in fact tell lies or at least a certain, certain lies um, during a political campaign. But the fact is that these machine learning algorithms, because those lies are engaging and they're keeping more people on the site are amplifying the reach of those. So it's different than when probably you and I got started on the internet and mm -hmm. Scott, uh, you know, creates a website and he writes his little diatribe about, uh, you know, don't, why do people believe in NASA and uh, all that kind of stuff. 
and puts it out there and 10 people, 10 of his friends read it. Right. It's a different thing today when he posts that on Facebook, uh, people start engaging, resharing, algorithms start seeing that, sensing that this is something people like to engage with and presenting it more and more. So it just gets out of proportion. So there's, there's always been fringe elements in the US. Um, you know, like I said, going back for uh, centuries, but the amplification of these fringe elements hasn't been there. And it's machine learning algorithms that contributed to that. And here's one of the things that um, I think is very interesting. And if I was questioning Mark Zuckerberg, this is where I would go with it. You remember this past summer, there was a number of, let's call them domestic terrorists that wanted to kidnap the governor of Michigan. Yes. Well, that was partially organized through a group on Facebook. Now, Facebook saw that, cooperated with the FBI, you know, helped, um, uh, I think, shut down the group, all that kind of stuff. But here's my question. I'll try not to use my name again. <laughs> say, say Don't that. incriminate yourself. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so let's say that John Doe goes on Facebook and decides, I want to join a domestic terrorist group. Well, that's one thing if he searches it out and finds it. But what if John Doe just goes on there and the algorithm says, oh, well, there's other 52-year-old white males that live in the Midwest that seem to be really engaged in this group and they stay online a lot. Let's suggest to John Doe that he join the Facebook group of this domestic terrorist group. And so that is a very different thing. So there's obviously a lot of controversy right now around a uh, particular part of the Communications Decency Act, I believe it was in called Section 230. And that basically holds harmless different platforms and different ISPs mm -hmm. for the data that goes around. And what has changed since that law was written is the addition of these machine learning algorithms. So that was written back in a time of AOL, um, basic websites, maybe listservs, if anybody recalls what those yep. were. Um, and, you know, the world has changed significantly. So that's the kind of questions I would want to ask. Is this machine learning algorithm just sitting there or is it actually helping to radicalize people and suggesting they become or come together in these different forums? Yeah. And What's interesting, I think, is as we're kind of steamrolling toward a future where, you know, technology advancement is just kind of just going on top of each other, on top of exponential advancement into a stage I wanted to talk to you about with cognitive architecture and the potential nature of AI consciousness, adding that to the mix potentially. Where do you see that? Well, I tell you that I have become more of a skeptic that we're going to see that kind of consciousness uh, anytime soon. I know there's others that yep. uh, disagree with that, but the more I learn about machine learning algorithms, the more I find out that this machine learning algorithm may be great at detecting whether Scott has pneumonia, but they can't tell if he has liver cancer or right. not, right? So it's very narrow, very focused. Um, those are really the best applications. I think we may see more disturbing things like deep fakes that yes. humans um, uh, as well. 
and we may see more scams that involve deep fakes. So one of the one of the big scams of the last couple of years has actually been uh, uh, phishing, a very specific type of phishing emails that are very sophisticated that have been leveraged against uh, executives and corporations with the result of hundreds of millions of dollars being stolen. So let's say that um, you are the uh, CEO of a company and I am the CFO and I get an email that looks like it's from Dr. Parker and it says, Scott, be sure to transfer $2 million in this account. We're gonna buy this startup and I wanna make sure it happens today. I go ahead and do that. Well, I transfer this money into an account that is in fact uh, some hacker in uh, Eastern Europe. So this has been happening, but you start to add in, well, what if that was a deep fake? So now I could get a phone call from Dr. Parker <laughs> because right. you're on these podcasts. So I'm afraid mm -hmm. you're probably pretty easy to deep fake. Completely. <laughs> and so um, now I get a phone call and it, it, oh, I, I verified it on the phone. I talked to him. You know, he definitely wants me to transfer that money. So uh, I think we're getting into a new field of cyber warfare uh, that is going to be very difficult um, to discern what's true and what's not. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned kind of your initial response because I've had a few people on here and we've discussed this. I'm, I'm interested in getting different people's takes on it, you know, and they said the same thing, actually, they didn't think it was in the near future at all, AI consciousness, and that same thing that AI is very narrow, maybe very good at one thing, but completely dumb at other things. Mm -hmm. And that, but also that companies, it's not their focus is and right now it's machine learning and deep learning. Um, but, you know, the whole idea of the deep fakes, I saw uh, a special about that. And it was like, that scared me the most actually. Because I'm like, where do we, what do we have to defend against that? Right. And um, yeah, I, I don't know right now, actually AI can detect deep fakes. So there is some counter uh, okay. AI, I, I, AI to that. Um, in my field in education, uh, you look at AI and it's use in writing. So that mm. is something that I've talked with my students about. My students thought about something that, um, I had not, it had not occurred to me, but we're actually doing an experiment right now uh, based on the students' suggestions. We have a plagiarism checker called Turnitin, and it's mm -hmm. built into our learning management system. So if a student turns in, Jane Doe turns in a paper, I can see that, oh, 80% of this has been turned in someplace else. And it may be at my institution, maybe at another institution, maybe it was from the web, from Wikipedia, whatever. And I can go to Jane Doe and say, hey, you know, what's going on? And it will actually show me the parts of uh, her paper that have been directly plagiarized or come from other uh, sources. Well, I was talking to my students about the ability to not only write new paragraphs with an AI, but also rewrite it because there's people that are content marketers that may uh, write an article for their kind of BuzzFeed style um, website, and they want to use it on another website where they're trying to 
have people come to in order to see ads, but they can't put the same article up there because Google will decide, oh, wait a second, um, this is just copy and pasting. Um, we're going to deprecate this in our search listings. And so, or maybe prevent them from hosting advertising. And so there's actually these things called re-spinners that will reword that article so that you can paste it onto a different website and it'll be different enough that Google won't recognize the, the difference. Oh. So, so I was telling my students about that and uh, one student was like, hey, is this an, a turn it in killer? Can we defeat turn it in by uh, running it through these re-spinners? So I was like, I don't know, why don't you send me a bunch of your papers? So I got about 20 students that sent me their papers and uh, I'm kind of uh, paused on it right now as I'm ending the semester, but uh, next week I hope to uh, finish this up. We're actually taking their papers. I put it in, turn it in. It says, okay, this is 100% plagiarized because they've already turned it in to some other class before. And now I'm running it through these re-spinners, these AIs that are rewording everything and then uh, I'm uploading it and sometimes I'm getting it, oh, only 50% of this has been plagiarized. Um, so it's very interesting. There's kind of like this war back and forth between the um, things that write essays and the, the things that check to see whether this essay was written by something else. So wow. I, I think, um, you know, the solution is very simple to me. You don't have classes of 500 students where you have <laughs> right. these automated tools. You have classes of 20 students. Learning is a social enterprise. It works much better anyway. Um, and that's how you get back to things. But uh, no, it's, it's, it's wow. interesting. And, and we're you know, kind of in this arms race back and forth. And whether it's with deep fakes or whether it's, um, there's even AI generated music right now. So um, it would be interesting to see. Some people predict that we'll see an AI that will be able to generate a best-selling song right soon. that'd be interesting i mean i i can see that happening honestly if it's wow i mean the, the whole education thing i had never thought about that and that that even existed that's why i love talking to different people in different fields they're experiencing ai in different aspects of technology in way different ways than i'm experiencing uh, i mean as i remember being a doctoral student, undergraduate student, and all that stuff. And I remember just like typing things, you know, not having like all these searching engines, search engines, and ways to, you know, do the use AI with it. It's, in, I would imagine as an educator, it's probably incredibly difficult to keep up with all the changes that are happening with all this stuff. Yeah, it, it is. And I will say that the pace of change has accelerated. So I don't think it's just me getting older, but it, thinks, <laughs> it seems like things change faster. Yeah. And I would say in this age of COVID, things are changing even faster. So right. if you look at like online grocery sales, where something like less than 1% of grocery sales are around 1% uh, back in early March. Well, now they're like 20%. And I don't know that they're ever going to go down again. You right. know, my mom doesn't want to go back into a grocery store ever again. She likes yeah. to, you know, just do things online now. When you discover so, the convenience of something and it may right. feel better to you, it's like, why would you go backwards on some things, you know? Yep. And 
uh, one of my colleagues that studies, he's an engineering that studies autonomous systems, so autonomous mm -hmm. vehicles, autonomous robots, he really thinks that autonomous cars are going to come about in the next couple of years in a big way as well, especially with uh, delivery. Uh, I had become kind of skeptical mm -hmm. and said, well, you know, uh, autonomous cars were overhyped and uh, it's going to be another 20 or 30 years before they actually achieve this. And after talking with him, I'm not so sure anymore because he says that he, he's actually out in San Francisco and he says that he get, gets passed by about five autonomous vehicles a day. What? Uh, <laughs> yeah, they're being tested. They're being driven around. Oh, man. And I think that, you know, that would be kind of nice to uh, think about the delivery. You wouldn't have to have a person delivering it. You could have some sort of little uh, van that would come up to your curbside and you press your uh, so many digits in the side or press something on your right. cell phone and it uh, opens the side door and you grab your groceries out. So um, I think there's lots of things that may be coming faster than we think. And so for my students, I tell them that uh, they really have to get to the point of this continuous learning. They have to be continually looking at what is the landscape. So uh, we actually include extra credit points uh, in different quizzes for people that are keeping up with the news. So, you know, what happened with yeah. Slack yesterday and Salesforce? You know, what, what what's right. that about? Uh, so you got to kind of, it's kind of like being a good basketball player. You got to survey your environment. You don't just yeah. look at what's right in front of you. You know what's going on. And so you can anticipate what's going to come next, or at least you can understand what is happening now. Um, and so I really encourage my students to try and do that. And uh, I think a lot of them have taken it to heart. And I, I'm really encouraged by uh, this generation of students, I know there's a lot of cynicism out there, but mm -hmm. I think they're very ready to tackle the challenges that come ahead. And in some ways, I think they're better at listening to each other uh, than <laughs> yeah. uh, folks in our generation are right now. Yeah. And what's, well, I wonder how, what are the conversations you have with your students related to job prospects with AI being such a, a large element of society and where that might be as they move into the workforce? Yeah, so that's one of the things that we talk about. Uh, it's one thing that I think is very different than previous technological revolutions. So my mom worked as a secretary and she would type things on a typewriter and she would be sometimes part of the steno pool, which would type lots and lots of stuff mm -hmm. from all over the university. That's not there anymore. We don't hire a typist, but we have IT professionals, right? And they make a lot more money than the, mm -hmm. the typist did. And so previous disruptions, while it kind of sucks if you're the typist um, and you can't transition into being an IT person, while it may be bad for that person, for society at large, it really expanded um, the employment base. But people are very concerned about AI because this may be very different. This may not only just affect those people that are doing jobs that require their body or re, uh, don't require as much education, but we may deploy AI and other technologies like blockchain into accounting. Okay, so if we could eliminate the need to reconcile records, that would eliminate a lot of what accountants do, a lot of what entry-level accountants do. And that would be a great kind of pattern recognition problem 
for an AI. Okay, so fraud detection, all auditing, all that kind of stuff could be done by an AI and done very quickly because you can actually feed the rules of the game. You can feed the rules of the right. tax code into the AI or into an algorithm. So people are very concerned that this may uh, not only eliminate uh, jobs that are paid on the lower end of the scale, but may also eliminate higher end jobs. So if you think about somebody who's a patent attorney and they do patent searches, well, why couldn't we turn that over to an AI that's basically looking for patterns and looking to see if um, this intellectual property matches something similar to some other intellectual property that's been patented in the past. And so I think, um, yeah, there's a lot of concern. We talk about it. Um, my, uh, you know, getting a college degree is, uh, you know, I realize there's got a lot of criticisms about college uh, um, from some folks, but it's still the, the best thing you can do to increase your earning potential over time. Um, you may not end up working in the field exactly the way you thought you would. So, for example, my undergraduate degree is in biology, uh, and I spent a little bit of time in there and decided I really didn't want to work in the area. Right. And so I uh, went into technology, which I really liked. Uh, but it opened the door for me. You know, I would not be able to be where I am right now. So that that maybe isn't that inspirational, uh, but uh, <laughs> it's something uh, that's just practical that you need to have that uh, degree. And right now it's still the best indicator yeah. of whether you're going to be employable. Uh, you know, and I also say get certifications in areas or get experience in areas that are not narrow. So be the accountant that also understands art history. So there's going to be some narrow niche out there for art history accountants, right? right? And so be the person that can fill that niche. And so the more, you know, be the technology guy that also knows about global trade, has a global trade certification, um, you know, some sort of way to branch outside of your field, because then you can have a niche that's going to be hard for others to compete with you. Most definitely. Uh, that's, that's, that's excellent advice, especially for people listening to this. I think we get caught up in too, too many ways of where like, okay, well, if you're doing this, you're not going to have this job, but be more versatile in the mm -hmm. offerings that you have and what you can provide. But Scott, this was awesome. Honestly, I mean, I could talk about this all day. This is incredible <laughs> information on very different take than the other people I've had on here to talk about AI, which is awesome to have a, a very different point of view. So thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, definitely. We will be in touch and you have a great day. Okay, you too. Thanks, Dr. Parker. All right, thank you. So let me ask you something. How do you get your news? Because I know you want to stay informed with what's going on here in the world. There's so much going on on a regular basis. And it's something that's been a problem for me personally. And I've been searching and searching and searching. And finally, I found a news source that I think all of my listeners are going to love. It's called The Donut, or The Dose of News Useful Today. The founder and CEO, Peter Nowak, is a good friend of mine. And when he turned me on to it, I was just blown away. Finally, a daily news source that delivers succinct and factual news about all the world's occurrences and it's an easy access to finding things that you just want to get information about and it also serves up a lot of positive news stories that you won't hear anywhere else it's your daily reminder that there is good in the world even if it doesn't feel like it sometimes so get the donut stay informed it's 100% free you can unsubscribe anytime 
Visit thedonut.co or text DONUT to 66866 to sign up today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. D's Social Network. Make sure you listen to future episodes. Also, please make sure to rate and review My Dad's Show on Apple Podcasts in the Rate and Review section. Thanks, everyone.